Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, it's George, and you're listening to another episode of the Zum Podcast. Today, we're talking to Anthony Bedard from Icky Boyfriends, Booker of the Hemlock Tavern, and the man behind the comedy record label Talent Moat. And, uh, yeah, all-around interesting dude. Had some stories to share, and we hung out in his apartment a little while back. Get into some San Francisco talk, some Boston talk, some weird music talk. I'm George, and I am here with Tony Bedard. Hi. How you doing, man? Good, thanks. People may mostly know you as the booker at the Hemlock Tavern, which you've done for a Is it over 10 years now? Yeah, I've uh, I've, I've crossed over the 10-year mark. Yeah. So, yeah, I started booking the Hemlock Tavern in 2002. Yeah, I mean, it was a job that I I never went out looking for or thought that I would ever have or do. I was... uh, I'd actually gotten laid off of a job at a, uh, at a, I was working at a brand marketing agency. Um, okay. and it was a, an agency that actually they're the people that invented the entire concept of supersize. Oh, really? And I worked with the woman who invented supersize and uh, this agency I worked for used to put together, um, they specialized in, in kind of big scale movie promotion tie-ins for brand, brand name products. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of their clients was Dryer's Ice Cream, and so they teamed up with that really horrible Godzilla remake, and came oh up, yeah, the Godzilla remake, and yeah. came up with uh, you know a limited time only ice cream called Godzilla Vanilla, and then it, it was had all sorts of really bad th- you know the kind of point of sale stuff in the grocery aisles, like there would be giant vinyl godzilla footprints <laughs> adhere to the grocery store aisle on your way to the on the way to your grocer's freezer but um so the company i worked for also helped develop the mcdonald's happy meal and the happy meal was originally invented by a franchisee and rolled out at just one mcdonald's location as kind of a homemade little fun idea uh-huh, uh-huh. and it became such a hit that it got noticed by the corporation at large and then they decided to streamline it which is where the company i worked for came in they Uh they streamlined this mcdonald's happy meal and uh one thing led to another and they decided to do a mcdonald's happy meal tie-in with the movie jurassic park so this woman i worked with came up with the idea of dino size your fries dino size your coke Uh uh-huh and that was a limited time promotion and it became the most successful promotion in the history of mcdonald's it was, you know, mega beyond anybody's wildest expectations. Uh-huh. This McDonald's, uh, you know, uh, Jurassic Park Happy Meal was a, a total blockbuster. And they were, and since it was a limited time only thing, it was about, you know, whatever, after several months, it was due to expire. And the company was really freaking out. So they they found this woman I worked with, Yuri, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they just kind of caught up to her in the hall. It was like, Yuri, 
you know, this, this promotion is going to end and what are we going to do? We have to keep this thing going, but we can't call it, you know, we can't use Jurassic Park anymore or Dino Size. We've, we've got to figure out something else. What are we going to do? And she was really kind of, the way she told it to me that she was really highly irritated uh, by the whole thing. And she just kind of offhandedly said, well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't give a fuck. Why don't you just call it, you know, Super Size instead of Dino Size, just call it Super Size. And they were like, Super Size, that's great, great. You know, they're running down the hall writing it on a yellow pad. And um, and the next thing you know, it became the the global yeah the, the global phenomenon. Will make Doug Benson's career to some extent, <laughs> you know. Marketing. Yeah, it was it was advertising, brand marketing, and I, I I was working at that job for a couple years. I actually wound up working on some uh, like TV commercials and long form marketing videos. Mm-hmm. I worked on a I was a, a producer on a fifteen minute long Jimboree. Do you know that kids yeah, yeah that kids chain. play chain. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we did a commercial for Replay TV, which is a forerunner to uh, to TiVo. Anyway, I, so I worked at this place for a couple of years and got laid off. Mm-hmm. And I was working at uh, the Mission Creek Cafe. Basically, I had no, I had I was right when that to, opened, right? Yeah, uh, and that was that was owned and operated by Jibs Cameron, who was the singer of the Roofies, mm-hmm. and her husband at the time, Carlos, mm-hmm. who owns Freewheel Bicycles. Right, right, and. Uh, I was basically just kind of, you know, slinging coffee and making sandwiches for people and right. washing dishes and doing that whole thing. <laughs> and uh, one day, just kind of out of the blue, the owner of the Hemlock Tavern, Don Allen, walked in and asked me uh, if I was interested in interviewing for the job of the the booker mm-hmm. at at the club. And I was like, eh, you know, not. I was like, no, I'm, you know, not really. I, I was, <laughs> <laughs> It's not anything I'm really that, you know, that interested in. Uh-huh. And, and there was some reason, you know, I had actually done some booking years before and I, I was just kind of not really into the whole idea. And then he was, he was sort of giving me the, the soft sell. Right. And, uh, like better than this coffee job, right? And, yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's like it exactly. So he kind of made his pitch and, and, you know, and it was while I was working on shift and he left and I was like, eh, I don't know, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be in touch. And, and then you know, it was basically looking at an entire day's worth of dishes that I had to wash. And all. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, holy shit, what am yeah. I fucking doing? Like, you know, I, I have to at least go talk to them. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I, I went into a, an interview situation, I guess, I don't know, couple, you know, the next week with them. And they they had already started having live music at the time. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't going, I don't think it was going very well, and it wasn't being run very well, and I, one of, a band of mine had already played there once. It, 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 what, they weren't really having full-time music, but it was more like, a, like I don't know, two or three times a week mm-hmm. kind of thing, and, and it, it, was, it was pretty sketchy mm-hmm. in a way, and so... Um, and I think of that as, like, that was uh, right around 2002, there was this thing that wasn't really getting represented anywhere else, or it was getting represented in really below under the radar kind of places yeah that that's you know yeah that's that's what i think i mean that, that there was not well, a, after chemos or you you overlap with chemos a little bit i think there's a little bit of overlap when there were shows at the hemlock and at chemos and you're kind of drawing from the same well yeah in some ways yeah i, I went into that interview and, and after thinking about it for a while and, and uh you know i guess the first thing I, I said well you know if you were to offer me the job or you know 
you know, I, I said, I really wouldn't want to do it because I don't really like the way that, you know, you guys, I mean, it's, it's not a really very good operation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know what, I had this weird kind of, you know, antagonistic idea in my mind about even uh-huh. doing the job. And so I just kind of went in there telling them that yeah. I didn't, I didn't Straight like. Straight shooter. Straight uh-oh. shooter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it wasn't a strategy to get the job. Like yeah. I went in there like, okay, I'm going to at least go talk to him. And then I was like, no, you know what? I don't really, yeah. I don't really want to do the job. And I don't know if you guys are really serious about doing live music or, you know, <laughs> right. and like, really? What the, tell us some more. What do you, you know, what are your, and I'm so like, you push oh, them like get a better PA and build the stage and things like that. Or yeah. And even just how the bands were paid and the drink ticket, just every, everything about the whole thing. And, and, and yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, basically I, they wound up offering me the job and I figured it beat the hell out of washing dishes. <laughs> you were also plugged into sort of the scene that's a little bit before my time in the Bay Area and also the scene that was kind of happening around the time that that started. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a list, like, after after I got hired, I, I, I sat down and I wrote a list of, I don't know, it was like 50 or 60 bands off the top of my head, mm-hmm. and I was determined not to look in a newspaper or go anywhere. I, I said, I have to just name these bands out of my, out of my fucking, out of my brain. Well, I think you have an interesting perspective because you moved here in the, what, early, mid-90s? Late 80s. Late 80s. Yeah, 1989. But you, so you have seen, and I kind of want to tap you about this because it's interesting to me, uh, like you've kind of seen the different cycles that kind of continually happen here. And I, I, I do think of that time around 2002, 2003 as being an interesting and pivotal time, but it seemed to also be, a little, it started to decline fairly rapidly uh, as far as like that cluster of bands that I, I would say, you know, none of those bands really exist now except maybe Burmese. Any race errata. Yeah, Deerhoof. Well, yes, definitely Deerhoof. I just saw them last night, actually, yeah. How were they? It was great, yeah. I mean, I, I keep forgetting that, like, I, I'm excited about playing music after seeing them, which is, you know, good and bad. It's kind of like this, like, ah, why can't I be like this? I was, <laughs> I was thinking of something Weasel said when, uh, when Ed joined the band. He was like, it's like Hendrix joining the Beatles. <laughs> like, like, a little hyperbolic, but, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, combination, but a lot of those that kind of era, I think of bands. Um, how would you compare that to other periods, like right when you moved to San Francisco in like '89? What was going on here when you moved here? You know, and I mean, I always tell people this because about that period, it was really dominated by kind of uh, thrash funk metal. Yeah, and, I remember that, and also maybe kind of you know proto grunge or kind of early grunge, mm-hmm. maybe. So it was really kind of borderline cock rock real kind of swaggering kind of heavy cock rock and then you know with the whole thrash funk metal thing that dominated san francisco at the time and those were bands like uh psychofunkapus professionals primus Primus, and 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 that i think also too culturally Mm -hmm. that was still when you know south of market and hate and the hate kind of still ruled in san francisco and that was really kind of at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. ascendancy of the mission Um, right you know, the mission really was still only getting rolling at that point in terms of being a cultural hub. Right. And I kind of remember that period as, like, you'd have, like, BAM magazine or something. Yeah, And that's, like, when I was living in the suburbs, we'd see those things, and it would be, like, pretty much just shoving that down your throat. It was, like, you know, uh, bands, like, you know, we were talking about. And maybe a couple interesting bands would get in there. And that, But that is at least a form of, like, 
regional specific music writing, even if I wouldn't say it was great journalism at all. Um, you know, there was like something there that sort of pushed the Bay Area identity at some point. Yeah, but it, you know, it, I mean, but it pushed it pushed a really bad side of the Bay Area identity right, because right. the bands that were coming out from the underground around that time were just getting going or you know, putting out their first albums or were uh, bands like Thinking Fellers Union, Local 282, Carolina Rainbow, and stuff like the Melvins, and you know, there's right, the Melvins were in the city then, yeah, that's right. And, you know, and so there was a bunch of stuff like that that was just really getting going, but that was still pretty, you know, sub sub underground. Oh yeah, yeah. And when did your band start up? Was that the first band, or you moved out here with some? No, Icky Boyfriend started. We started. We got together in around '89. But John, the singer, and Shay, the guitarist, had been living together and starting to record in '88. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played our first show in April of '90, 1990, with uh, at the Covered Wagon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, covered, the covered Wagon Saloon. Right, which is now. I've been through so many owners. I don't even know what it is now. Cherry know, Bar. For Cherry Bar was its last. Oh, iteration. Okay. I don't even know if it's open at the moment. It may but not be open, yeah. Yeah, we, we played our first show with Thinking Fellers and with the Melvins. Whoa, and okay. And uh, it was, and we got basically, we either got like kicked off, pulled off stage. I mean, we, we like whatever people, you know, it was a pretty big crowd and like we emptied the room about five or ten <laughs> minutes into our set and the booker who had been into, he had heard us play and he yeah. was into, you know, he had booked us, but then when he saw what was happening and he came like running out, like his face was all red. He's like, you guys cut out. You gotta, you gotta stop. You know, like basically kind of cutting us off like 10 or 15 minutes into our first show. But what were you doing that was so, was it just the, the whole act or was yeah. it, yeah, it was just, they just were not, this is like open micing or something. Yeah, people just couldn't <laughs> deal with it or whatever, whatever reason. And then even our friends, a lot of, some of our friends weren't there. I remember because it was the, uh, it was the night of, um, it was the U.S. television debut of Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. And that was back during a time when like David Lynch was, was, you know, hot off of Blue Velvet yeah, and yeah. this is his big TV show and. So even, this is how bad it was, even there was a guy, um, a good friend of ours, Robert Arnold, who made the uh, the Boyfriend's videos for Pigs No Duh, but he was sort of the fourth, unofficial fourth member of the band at that time, uh-huh. and he was going to possibly join the band full-time or be our guitarist, and he missed our set because he was home watching Twin Peaks, <laughs> you know, so I mean, all the, even our friends showed up after the plug had been pulled on us, like, oh, what are you guys going on, and you know, it was... Missed it, <laughs> and then all the people in the bar just just you know kind of looked at us like they were really sort of embarrassed for us. Uh-huh. Yeah, kind of felt sorry for us, and they didn't really want to make eye contact, and uh, you know. And how did you feel? Like, did you feel like it was somehow successful for even getting to that point? Or well, I, I mean, I don't even think we we hadn't really gone out looking for a gig. We were just <laughs> playing at this warehouse, uh, practicing at this warehouse where. It was a warehouse where like um, Tragic Mulatto used to play, yeah, and Carolina that. played there. It was it was 18 Sycamore. The residents used to live there years okay. ago, um, and they shot some of their movies. Like they shot Third Reich and Roll there, and yeah. You know, so I mean, we were just doing our thing, and not really. We had no visions of playing a show. And this guy, this guy, the Booker Kyle of the Covered Wagon, just happened to be over at the warehouse one day visiting friends and heard us play. And like, hey, how do you guys like to do a gig? And we're like, no, we didn't even have a name. So, <laughs> I mean, he heard us play and yeah. he booked us and then he, he yanked the- us off stage. <laughs> and and then 
like I said, you know, we had cleared the room and, you know, it was just people were totally like shunning us, uh-huh. you know, after, after the gig in the main bar at the covered wagon. And then there was this one guy who was kind of an acquaintance, you know, but he came up to, Oh my God, you guys, that was so awesome. <laughs> I want to put out your record on my new label, <laughs> <laughs> close and play records. And, uh, so really, I mean, our first, you know, our first gig and we wound up getting a quote unquote record deal out of it. He wound up putting out like three of our records. He moved into a camper van and lived on the streets of San Francisco to have the money to pay for our first record. Uh, That's pretty intense. (laughs) So, I mean, he just was all of a sudden like, it it was one of the, I think maybe that's what kind of sums up the band that it was sort of this thing of a handful of people loved us and were rabid fan, like, Oh my God. And, and then the overwhelming majority of the people couldn't stand us or despised us or really couldn't deal with it. Right. And then I think over like the course of like the band existed pretty much for about five, five full years. Uh-huh. And I don't know, I'd say if like, if it started out like 10% loving us and 90% hating us by the end of our run, it had probably gotten up to about 30 or 40% loving us uh-huh. yeah yeah like a, you know it was splitting the room it was a war it was a war of attrition <laughs> you know with with that band playing in any bands in Boston, but that's pretty much all I did when I was going to school there was, was going out to see live music. Well, like mid eighties, Boston, that's a pretty early time, early mid eighties, you know, from like Burma, you see, or that might've been right after they, they had broken up right after I got there, but I quickly became a volcano suns fan and, and, you know, was pretty obsessed with that band and went and saw pretty much every show they played in a, right. you know, five or six year period. And, uh, the Pixies actually would have been right in this. Yeah, but that, they were a weird band in that they kind of came from the Boston suburbs oh, okay. and they, it was weird for them because they bypassed the Boston club scene, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the working underground, like the bands who were getting signed to, 
you know, even like even your, the your Bullet LaVolta or whatnot. Bullet LaVolta or any of the, the Boston bands that got on Homestead. The or even Dogs or something. <laughs> yeah, the Homestead bands or any even the hardcore You know, right. there was like this well-developed mm-hmm. kind of factional Boston underground scene. And like, the Pixies were not a part of that right. at all. They like just Cosloy kind of, or whatever endorsed things. Or like, yeah, yeah they, they just kind of fell out of the sky right. onto 4 AD. Uh-huh. And all these people who were in the Boston rock scene were like, "Who the who the hell are these guys?" Right, bunch of suburban. You know, they were like, I, there's a thing that happens though, and then I, I feel like it's funny. It's like just with with comedy and with music. I think of like people just get like, well, how, they skip the line, they cut in the line, and like like yeah, there's no like one way to do it, and they just went for it. You know, yes, they did. They did skip the line, and <laughs> there was a lot of bitterness and envy and jealousy mm-hmm. over that. But in a way, I mean, it, it, it's kind of it, it figures on in a certain on a certain level because a band, you know, a, a, a suburban, a disaffected suburban band actually has a lot more to say mm-hmm. to the population <laughs> at large than like a bunch of Boston, <laughs> than, than, you know, a bunch of Boston like underground Boston musicians with a specific axe to grind, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's just I don't know. You probably interacted with uh, that dude. He just like passed away recently. Like the the Billy Ruane. Yeah, yeah. I I not encountered him until the last time I played in Boston. The only time I played in Boston in two thousand eight, and I think he passed maybe a year later or something. Yeah, Billy was great. I mean, yeah. he he put on shows, and he he just didn't put on shows, but he was really just a presence at shows. That he people, was definitely a presence at that show. He, he was like a legendary presence at pretty much almost any. You know, live show. Right. He was the guy who was going out. You know, seven nights a week, and he always wore a suit, like a three-piece suit, or had a you know a coat and tie, and and then he would go to these shows, and a lot of you know he was setting some of them up or booking some of them, but then even the ones that he didn't, he was just going to all these shows and dancing like a freaking maniac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was just kind of this you know very well loved force of nature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another well, one of my favorite, my favorite. Guy in Boston, um, and he, it was uh, his name was Mr. Butch, uh-huh. and he was like a six foot four Rasta guy who would stand in Kenmore Square, which is right around the corner from uh, Fenway Park. But he would stand in the middle of Kenmore Square and play the Green Acres theme, like a really fractured Green Acres theme on his electric guitar. He had little, the tiny little amp, mm-hmm. and uh, Mr. Butch, he, he was <laughs> he wasn't quite the yeah you know, he he was definitely a, a a presence in the yeah. you know city of Boston, kind of more of a street guy. I wound up renting his room at a. It was a pan, I rented the pantry that he used to live in off of a kitchen in a house down in Alston the summer before I moved to San Francisco. <laughs> so Mr. Butch and I shared yeah. or or had a. I don't know. I guess we we spent time in the same living space. You breathed each other's air <laughs> and each other's dander. I guess probably dander. Dander is a good term for it. <laughs> So did you stick around Boston a little bit before deciding you're going to come out to San Francisco? Is that kind of Yeah, I worked uh, I worked at the Boston Public Library for a year after college. I worked in the rare books department um mm-hmm. in the old uh, old main library and uh worked there for about a year um doing stuff. One big project I worked on was the um the Sacco Vanzetti collection, the okay. Italian anarchists yeah, yeah, yeah. who were executed in the early 20s their and papers or whatever or their books from letters. you know but uh, everything like basically wow. it's the big collection of all their stuff including their death masks so i got to uh like actual plaster masks oh of, of they their, used to do that back then they yeah just, like take a, a mold a mold of, of, of the dead men's faces Whoa. so i got to handle those and uh, that was pretty pretty wild 
you know, so I worked there for a year, you know, saved up some money, kind of went, lived in, I uh, went abroad for a year, worked in, uh, I was living in London and Paris and traveling right. around Europe. I was, um, I came back from that trip after about, I was out of the country for a year and I went back to Boston mm-hmm. and that was the summer of 89 when I was living in Mr. Butch's old room down in this pantry off of Alston and, uh, God, I mean, that, that was the summer I saw, it, it was a show, it was like one, one of these shows I was like, man, I gotta get the fuck out of town after I saw the show, it was the Happy Flowers and the Frogs, and pretty much one of the greatest live shows I've ever seen in my life, and, uh-huh. and uh, I, I was working at a Jewish deli called Pick a Chick, with uh, with my friend Johnny A, he was he and I were living in this house together, and his cousin, who was an older guy, Bobby Rook, was his cousin, and Bobby Rook was the former manager of Jay Giles Band, Aerosmith, and the Cars uh-huh. during the 1970s heyday of all those bands, and so he was, he was pretty well off. And he had uh, Bobby Rook had teamed up with uh, this guy Kenny Jaffe, whose family had run a, a famous Jewish deli in Boston called Pickachick. And they were trying to reopen, restart. It was sort of like a reimagining, re you know, relaunch mm-hmm. of Pick a Chick, and yeah. it was going to do battle with Boston Market, which was before. Um, well, actually, it was called Boston Chicken at the time. Okay. So they were trying to redo this Jewish deli to do battle with the Nate. So it was like basically the beginning of the Boston Chicken Wars. Oh, I don't know about this. This is not quite as well documented as the Philadelphia Cheesesteak Wars. <laughs> I guess. Or not as like racially like uh, ethnically, ethnically charged. charged. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should do like a, just a food beef. Like, where's the beef? <laughs> Actual podcast. Is it fresh? Is it fresh, Kenny? <laughs> um, so yeah. So I mean, so Johnny A and I were college graduates working in this Jewish deli with a bunch of high school kids, <laughs> and then most of the clientele were elderly Jewish people from from Brookline. Uh-huh. Great, like total. If you if you love if you love characters. Yeah. You know, if you love, you know, uh, it was, it was just a, a pretty great place to work. And, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, we're, you know, basically wearing deli whites, you know, yeah. working with high school kids and, uh, You're like, I went to school, we, like, we, what am I doing? <laughs> we broke the, the, the centerpiece of the deli was this, um, was, a, a like a state of the art, uh, rotisserie case so mm-hmm. that the chickens would roast on a spit and you'd be able to pick your chicken pick a chick pick yeah. a chick you'd uh-huh. be able to pick your own chick okay and uh the day before pick a chick had its grand opening johnny a and i were putting the the sliding glass door on the rotisserie case <laughs> and we, <laughs> we somehow put it on backwards and we shattered it broke it and so that the deli had to open without its centerpiece deli case and then everybody was coming and going how where's the how come i can't pick my own chicken or you know they would, to keep the chickens warm and then it had to wrap them in foil pouches and it just wasn't the same so it was sort of it was sort of cursed from the start and so you uh, could have you could have actually like been on the ground floor of the competition of boston market well it, it, it was called boston chicken and yeah i mean it was yeah. right it was boston chicken and Picket Chicks started right around the same time, and they were competitors, and, and it was like, and, you know, really... Yeah, it could have been you guys that caused the failure of the franchise. <laughs> do, do we, we, we altered, we you, altered fast food history. You've done it, you've kind of done it twice, is what I'm learning today. It's like you're ter- tangentially involved in the supersize. I had nothing to do with supersize, though, uh, though I was friends with the woman who invented right. that concept. <laughs> yeah. 
staying in a college town after you're done with college can be like this weird kind of, I mean, I know what it's like. I've kind of done that too. You kind of sink a little bit into like uh, yeah. postpartum. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think at that point, you know, wanting to get out of the deli and then yeah. I, really, I wanted to play music. I, I, you know, I did want to play in a band. I didn't think it was going to happen in Boston. And I, you know, finally, uh, I had a couple of friends who had been out here and, you know, it was just really recommended, you know, recommended as a place that I should go visit or check out. Mm-hmm. And so I basically moved here in 89, sight unseen, three days before the earthquake. Oh, right. Yeah. During the, uh, the Battle of the Bay. The Giants and the A's, yeah. Yeah. So you had a sense you wanted to be in a band. Did you have a sense about the comedy stuff back then also? Were they competing impulses? Um, Lifelong comedy fan. Yeah. Lifelong obsessive comedy fan from, you know, I guess Saturday Night Live was first hit the air when I was about 10 or so. And it was that thing of, you know, after my parents went to bed of sneaking back into the living room and, you know, that, that whole yeah. bit and, uh, totally. you know, being obsessed with Monty Python and second city TV and mad magazine and that... wacky, wacky packs and anything that was satirical or funny or that made fun of anything. Or, you know, we were loved Steve Martin and, you know, we, we had to go over to, um, friends, you know, friends in, in middle school, we had to go over to their, to their house kids that had older siblings in order to hear comedy records Mm -hmm. like Cheech and Chong and George Carlin and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, It's like that forbidden fruit thing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But also, did that inform, like, how you approached music? Like, was there an intent to, I mean, with Icky Boyfriends, it seemed like there was a degree of theater to it, right? um, Or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth about it. it. Well, I mean, it, it was very, uh, you know, very, I don't know, kind of chaotic and cathartic, mm-hmm. I think, are two, you know, two descriptions for mm-hmm. uh, for what went on with that band live. I don't know if comedy, you know, I mean, one thing I loved about the Volcano Sons, uh, the Boston band I mentioned earlier, was mm-hmm. just that they, they had a really very kind of sarcastic, sardonic sense of humor, mm-hmm. and that really kind of came through in their music, so maybe that was another, maybe that was a reason that I liked them a lot, as opposed to, you know, people that were more self-serious, or, mm-hmm. you know. Or like the a, punk scene can be, a little, I don't know what the Boston punk scene at that time was like, you know, other than like, the hardcore, kind of like, there's like... Gangrene! The, the, yeah. <laughs> but then like, there's sort of later, slap like... Slapshot. Yeah, slapshot, <laughs> things like that, yeah. Um... Well, you know, yeah, so I mean, so I've always loved comedy, and, you know, I think, um, and then how it wound up... um, Because, yeah, Club Chuckles was an idea that you initiated uh, pretty early into when you were booking the Hemlock. Yeah, so I started started booking the Hemlock in, you know, early 2002, and so for the time being, I had kept my job at the cafe while the the Hemlock was getting really kind of, Mm -hmm. still kind of ramping up. Mm -hmm. It was open for business, but, you know, I... You know, no money was really coming in yet from from the Hemlock, and so I held on to my job at the cafe right. there. And um, we were doing demo. <laughs> we were listening to demos that the cafe, the, the other people at the cafe, and I, I was I was starting to get folder rock packages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I was like, well, when the hell else am I going to listen to this stuff? You know, so I brought him into the cafe and we'd be reading bios and putting on tapes and listening to stuff in the middle of the afternoon when the cafe was relatively empty. <laughs> And, um, one of my, one of my early visitors at the cafe after I'd gotten the job uh-huh. was Bucky Sinister. Oh, yeah. And Bucky at the time was 
completely immersed in the you know, San Francisco comedy scene, especially kind of more of the sketch-based stuff. But he was going out to see a lot of stand-up, but he was really into the sketch groups that were going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Just like, I guess, like Casper House or... Fresh you know, Robots, or... Totally False People. I don't know a lot of those ones, yeah. Well, some of these groups are, you know, were people and the early um, people behind um, SF Sketchfest, who later went on to create okay. SF Sketchfest. Right. So, you know, Janet Varney... Mm-hmm. Uh, Owen, you, you know, we've got to, you know, there's a bunch of those people who are in these, these sketch groups, but, um, so Bucky would just come in and would drink coffee and basically stand there at the counter with a large coffee mm-hmm. and we would talk Tops. about comedy yeah, yeah. and that's, we were just like, he would come in I don't know, he, he was coming in almost every day or at least, you know, at least, you know, two uh-huh. or three times a week when I was working on shift and he would just come in and stand there and, ah, you know, kind of hold court yeah. <laughs> yeah. about comedy. And it was, it was really interesting to me. And, you know, and I was basically at that point, very early on, there was such a deluge of, of bands and people all trying to get into the hemlock of, you know, people trying to get booked or getting their acts booked. And, mm-hmm. and it was really of just trying to like slow down the, this deluge, you know, trying to keep people or, you know, bands at bay. And I didn't just want to fill up the schedule with bad, with bad bands right. just to fill a night. Right. And so I started creating like a, I, Club Chuckles was one of a handful of, of kind of fake um, so-called clubs that or, or nights that I would right. put in at the Hemlock and pretend that somebody else was booking them. <laughs> and I guess in a way, if you really want an analogy, Club Chuckles was sort of a the Safeway Select <laughs> of the Hemlock. You know what I mean? Like just sort yeah. of like a fake in-house brand name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that gave me a little bit of separation where I'd be like, oh, sorry, I can't book your band. We got Club Chuckles that I or we have, we have this comedy thing going on. And well, am I remembering this wrong? Is one of the first things you did under that was you had people from bands doing covers of jokes? Was that not the first thing you did? Or maybe that, that was maybe that was like one of the, maybe the, the first or second show. Yeah. And um, yeah, people doing live live reenactments of of famous comedy routines. Mm-hmm. There was one other person. Um, it was a uh, Harmon Leon. I think was also at the time. Maybe I think it was maybe right around the time. Maybe a parallel development where he came up with uh, Jokey Okey. Uh, okay. Which is sort of like another kind of you know comedy karaoke thing, mm-hmm. but this so we had a, it was maybe the first or second ever Club Chuckle show, but yeah, it was Will wasn't it Will York? No, no, it was Jay I was, Baronsky. I, I wasn't there, but I heard that uh, yeah, Jay did something. Jay Baronsky covered an entire Brian Regan act. Brian Regan, the, the clean famous for being yeah. the, the clean comedian, the clean comic. Yeah, yeah. You know, G rated material yeah, and. Yeah. Um, and Will York, who was writing for the SF Bay Guardian at the time, he did Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> and he, it was so, it was, he killed as Jeff Foxworthy. That. And I think really the, the jokes that got the biggest response <laughs> were his 19, when were the, when were the Olympics in Atlanta? Was it 1986 or was it 1990? 90. 90. 90. Yeah, because it was like a bomb. 96? Maybe 96. The, okay, like so he basically was doing these Jeff Foxworthy Atlanta Olympics jokes and leaving in all of these dated references. And for some reason, I just remember that material. Like people were really at that point, people were, were, were dying. Yeah, he was, yeah. he was, he was so good. Uh-huh. Um, He's so dry too. I could see that being great. Just like coming out of him. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he's right. He's isn't he from the south? I mean, he's got I think that, he's from the south. Yeah, yeah, and he had that. So he had that little bit of a drawl too. Oh, and then Tara Jepsen did. Uh-huh. Um, she did this this act, which we we had her back a, a few times to do. Um, she had an act called Lady Gallagher. So she dressed up like Gallagher. Oh, I've heard of this actually. With the rainbow suspenders and the mustache, and then she, you know, brought in the watermelon. <laughs> it late, you know, it, it, she, you know, Lady Lady Gallagher. <laughs> Far, far surpasses real life Gallagher. <laughs> I hate it. So surreal, <coughs> fucked up, and weird. And uh, and you know, of course, like she's doing it straight up. She's doing she's doing Gallagher's committed. act. You know, she's fully committed. committed. Yeah, yeah. I think these things only really worked because of of how committed the people were. Mm-hmm. But um, but you also kind of like that was a little bit of a bridging of people that were music people that were also huge comedy fans getting into the act a little bit I think at that time like I think like you had other people maybe well, Neil maybe, Neil Hamburger was another maybe, you know I think maybe oh the, yeah you kind of had him a lot he did that, that yeah he was lot. he was the he was really that was if if the the show we were just talking about if that was like the first or the second that Neil Hamburger was one or the other like mm-hmm. the first or second club chuckles mm-hmm. and uh and you know, he, you know, if any, if, if there's anybody who exemplifies the music comedy crossover, right. you know, <laughs> before it became a thing, yeah. he, you know, he really, I mean, and, and Icky Boyfriends used to play shows with his old band, right. the, Zip, the Zip Code Rapists. You knew him out of character as Greg, too, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he had played in a number of these really kind of confrontational performance Zip art bands, rapist. the Zip yeah. Code Rapists being, you know, the most notorious of them all. Fact Ted. Facts had yeah. three doctors, no doctors. Oh, the three doctors record, yeah. And uh, yeah. and so he, he had a st- label too. So. Well, he started doing. He he released a series of of forty fives, like the early Neil Hamburger stuff. There was this great local label. Uh, people should try to track down if you can. I recommend the entire discography, Planet Pimp. Right, right. And uh, forty fives, like the sounds of uh, the field recordings of like. Suburban, like, restaurants. Yes, and, and then some and David Noodleman uh-huh. uh, um, from Three Stone Men. They put out, David Noodleman lays an egg. They put out that that 45, and they they released, uh, you know, the early Neil Hamburger. And so, basically, there were these these comedy 45s that were just kind of being passed around by, by music obsessives. Uh-huh. And never had performed live and in fact it took him several years to work up to the point of performing live it was mm-hmm. always something oh you got to do this live and he really just would well the held it at, yeah. held it at arm's length for a number of yeah. years before he took the plunge yeah. and then even then you know i mean he just he just really kept at it and kept crafting and perfecting you know neil hamburger to the point where you know it really um you know to the point where there was no more Greg Turkington and there was only Neil Hamburger and it's really... Like, even the voice on those early crank calls sounds a bit different than what it turned into. Like, like the one where he's like, I'm in your band! Yeah. And, you know, all these types of things. You yeah. Know? The voice is different, for sure. Um, yeah, so he, you know, so he was like a first early, mm-hmm. early days club chuckles. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so basically it was... Uh, Oh god! But he wasn't was living it? in the city at that point, right? Was he living? He was living somewhere else. He might have moved up to Sacramento or yeah. you know, around that time. But then I think the other thing too that, that happened around the early late '90s, early 2000s mm-hmm. that was really inspiring me was uh, the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were going bonkers for the Larry Sanders show and yeah. watching that all the time. And and then we were doing um, my friend Bob McDonald, who yeah. later Bob. he and I are went on to be in a few bands together. Mm-hmm. 
um, Hank Four being the most recent one. But Bob and I, inspired by the Larry Sanders show, we went and did our own live comedy talk show at the Casanova Lounge. Whoa! Um, okay. On Saturday afternoons. How long did you do that for? It was there was not that many of them. Um, I don't know. There was really only a handful, but it was happened over a course of a few. There was like one a month for three or four, five. I don't. I don't know if we did five. It might have been more like four. Um, so late nineties. Late nineties, early two thousand, yeah. maybe even two thousand. Did you ever film any of that? Um, I'm not sure if we had. And who, and who was who was Larry and who was uh, Jeffrey Tambor? Well, he, Bob was the host uh-huh. of the show. Johnny Meggett, his uh, friend from Denver, was the was the sidekick. Okay. And I was the musical director, so I was kind of like uh, the one man band. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> Did you have guests and stuff? Yeah, we had we had guests. We had. Um, God, uh, the the rapper Dose One yeah, yeah, was yeah. a guest. Um, author comedian Beth Lissick was okay. a guest. Oh, so this is like earlier two thousand, right? Because like that's when the Anticon stuff. Yeah, that, that was yeah, when the Anticon okay, yeah, stuff yeah. was was pretty was going that's, pretty big. Mm-hmm. Watching the Larry Sanders show, we were doing our own live talk show, mm-hmm. and then um, this friend of ours, uh, he's a John Whitson who runs Holy Mountain. So we had mm-hmm, a friend, this mm-hmm. woman Tracy Flanagan who was working at the punchline and Tracy started putting us basically, um, putting us on the guest list for Uh, almost any and every show there. And it was incredible. So we were going to see all these people like Sarah Silverman and Dave Attell. Um, um, what's, uh, Mike Birbiglia, um, back, back in 2002, like kind of like, up and coming people back then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were going to see all these people who, you know, some of them were like huge, you know, comedy super comedy superstars now, and they were they were even well known then. Yeah, Silver Silverman was pretty well known, then. but you know, so I mean, it was that kind of thing where I probably never would have gone to see all that stuff or seen quite the range or the breadth of of all the the live stand up mm-hmm. comics that we did. You know, yeah. mostly because we were on the gravy train, and so we were like, you know, screw it, we were going, you know, every chance we got. John Hugazi, and so we saw lots of the locals, yeah, and you know, and and. You know, I just remember Bucky, you know, I said, Bucky, you know, I, I was, I was telling him one day, I go, yeah, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to start this, this, com- this monthly comedy series. I don't know what I'm going to call it yet. And, and Bucky, you know, you know, uttered his, his, to me, his famous line about this kind of his, his warning caveat, I don't know, career advice, whatever it was. <laughs> he was like, Anthony, you know, he's, he's, if, um, if you're going to do, if you're going to book live stand-up comedy, there's one thing you got to know. And I'm like, well, what's that, Bucky? Comedians don't have any friends, <laughs> and I and I thought about that for a while. And I said, you know what? I can work with that. I can work. It's you know, as opposed to bands lying to you, or you know, yeah. bands lying to you, telling you that they have friends, and then nobody shows up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I thought, okay, well, you know, if 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 I know from from square one that these the comedians don't have any friends and that nobody's going to come see them, mm-hmm. I can I can tackle that. Yeah. So and actually, even like when you bring someone who's like doing it for the first time, then there's they, all their friends come out for the for that kind of thing. So when you bring someone who's like new to it in like like hey, I'm going to have like Will York do or like yeah yeah there, there's like it's, kind of that built in thing. It's and like a friend like, rock. Yeah, there, there's yeah. there's definitely like friend rock. Mm-hmm. You know the friend rock of comedy. Mm-hmm. You know that that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I, it, it was a weird. I, I had a lot of. Um, I had it was a pretty 
long, at least in the first year or so mm-hmm. um, of that series, of, of the Club Chuckle series, there was a long-running disagreement with the owner of the club mm-hmm. about having live comedy there at all. Like, he strongly was of the opinion that stand-up comedy did not have a place at the Hemlock Tavern or that it was just basically not not commercially viable. And his gut feeling was that, you know, the meat and potatoes, rock and roll bands is going to, you know, win the day and that comedy, it's just, it's too on the fringe or too on the margin or it's just, you know, people aren't going to come in and people aren't going to come or if they do, they're not going to spend, you know, so there was, there was that whole thing. And he had pretty much, you know, as one of the conditions of me being hired, I had gotten, I had asked for and pretty much gotten carte blanche to book whatever I want, right. you know, and with a real hands-off policy, uh-huh. kind of taking a, a long-run approach of, you know, we're really going to oh, de- really develop yeah. this thing over, over a period of time, yeah. and I don't want to be micro, if, if a show goes bust, mm-hmm. I don't want to be uh-huh. micromanaged on it. It's really going to kind of be, you know, well, but then if, you know, whatever, if I'm doing something in, over the course of a couple of years and it doesn't work or whatever, several months or a year or two when it doesn't work out, of course, we'll change what Direction, we're doing. Yeah. But um, I think with the comedy, he really was not sold. Mm-hmm. And I was so, like, I was so into it. I'm like, well, I had built up, you know, there we were having crazy manic sold out shows, yeah. oversold out shows with Deerhoof, like right. things where you could not even physically get into the bar, mm-hmm. like stuff that was just so overcrowded. And, and these bands were, I mean, who knew? I mean, you know, Deerhoof was really only still playing like, warehouse, still play chemos you know, yeah, out. exactly. They, they were nowhere really, really in town that they were, they were playing, but they were at the same time, they were you know, grassroots phenomenon or blowing up and, you know, so, I mean, I had, I'd built up a lot of, uh, maybe a reservoir of goodwill with mm-hmm. the success of all the bands. Like the music program was going really well. And I just, I consciously said to myself, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'm going to blow all of that <laughs> on comedy. But, but people drink at comedy. I think that tends to be, it's you know, weird. I, I think, drink. you know, I, you know, the more, you know, the more I, I did it over the years and then you, you come, you know, you. I had been to so many comedy shows at the at the Punchline and at Cobbs or places like that. That, and then I'm trying to do it at the Hemlock, and all of a sudden, you know, the more you you do your own, so I go, oh, okay, so that's why they do things the way they do. You know, uh-huh. on one hand, you're trying to, you know, just do your own thing, or like, oh, there's no two, two drink minimum, and then after you do it up in the shows, you realize you know, why they have a two drink minimum. And then also and staff and like, you know, well, seating, also to, yeah. you know, the, and I think with the, some of the bigger or more established comedy clubs, it's not even really a two drink minimum. It's more of a two drink maximum. It's hard to get served more than a couple of drinks at one of those shows, unless you order multiple drinks at one time, mm-hmm. you might be able to get three drinks if you're lucky, mm-hmm. but they haven't really, they, they have it dialed in. Mm-hmm. They, they have a formula and it works. Right. And there's been these club and the club chuckles, these shows, like the early, I mean, even, I mean, it's, it's really kind of like a, a wild west, you know, yeah. you know, frontier, and you're kind not, of, and, no, yeah. anything goes, no holds barred. And the audience factored into that because the audience was good and liquored up, mm-hmm. especially at those Neil Hamburger shows. They're yelling um, shit, probably. The Todd yeah. Berry shows, yeah. you know, like people who, hecklers or people, audience members that might have been escorted out of a, of a you know, of the punchline, <laughs> we're somehow allowed, we're somehow allowed to remain at a club chuckle yeah. show yeah, just yeah. because we didn't have anybody, you know, <laughs> act, be, acting like, as a bouncer, and right. you know, so yeah. Todd Berry's evisceration of of a couple of uh, hecklers really, um, man, one of one of the all time great 
you know, it wasn't even, I don't even think he told a single joke that night. It was just basically <laughs> like 45 minutes of destroying the lives of, of these two drunk hecklers. At the time, I mean, we had the ability and the resources to do small comedy shows that would be successful in a, in a small room. Right. And I was just kind of booking, and we were starting to, we, we were getting some acts to come up from LA or we were pulling from the, you know, some of the better known, yeah. you know, comedians in, in San Francisco. But um, it was really, I mean, after after a few months' time, you know, when it was coming to a head of, of the owner of the Hemlock saying, uh, you know, I really don't have a good feeling about the comedy. And basically, I kind of, we had had Neil Hamburger a couple of times. Mm-hmm. That's got to sell out, yeah. At that point, and, and it done phenomenally well. Like, yeah. we had him on a Friday night, and that was sort of like where Don was like, we we got to have rock and roll bands on a Friday. Comedy's not right. And it made we went through and looked at all the numbers of... You know, we took a random sampling of Friday nights from the last, you know, calendar year, you know, on nights that we had, you know, Some rock bands, bands yeah. that, you know, in theory should have done really well or done really well at the bar. And we compared them against the comedy nights. And basically what we discovered, and it was actually a, even a surprise to me, was that Neil Hamburger, uh, within a, inside of a year or two, inside of the, like a year, had wound up establishing the all-time bar record at the Hemlock Tavern, mm-hmm. um, the most bar sales that we had ever had. And uh, and so at that point, like, you know, comedy was, was for, you know, firmly established <laughs> as, a, as an ongoing a concern. Yeah. You know, and then at that point, then we started getting all, you know, um, Brent Weinbach, right. uh, Jasper Red, Louis Katz, uh, Kevin Shea, um, you know, Dragon Boy Suede, uh, Hard and Firm, mm-hmm. Mike Furman, and um, Chris Hardwick. Uh, Janet Varney had a, a girl music duo called Fempire, who were really amazing. Um, who also, yeah, so there was there was a bunch of people we wound up booking that mm-hmm. you know later, you know, went on to you know get specials on Comedy Central and stuff like that. But we just sort of got in on the ground floor, right. you know, and booked a lot of early early days shows with some of these people and and it went really well this is be a good segue into talking about talent moment and this is also the first thing you guys did was with bucky also right so bucky's kind of a, a through line to between all this stuff yeah so we you know at the time i was taping a lot videotaping audio taping a lot of the shows at the hemlock and um on mini dv at a you know sony dv camera and I was taping most of the shows. I've, I've got I've got boxes in the closet of several hundred hours of bands that played the Hemlock between 2001 and 2000 and I don't know maybe like 2005 2006. I I it just got to the point where I couldn't really I just couldn't deal with it anymore. It was just too much going to as many of the shows or being there as much as I was. Yeah, like I actually noticed that. Like I, I'll often be at shows and like. I'm not. I don't expect to see you there anymore, <laughs> unless I, I, it's like a like a special show, like the Nate Denver show or something like that. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I used to be there five to seven nights a week, yeah. and just you know, oh, it make me crazy. Ten years into it, <laughs> I was like, but so I, I was taping all the shows, and definitely I was religiously taping all the Club Chuckle shows. Mm-hmm. So I've got quite an archive of 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 the first few years of that, you know, of all the shows that went on, and um. You know, I'd already, you know, I'd started, we had started a record label back in the early 90s 
called uh, Past It. It was just basically a, a flimsy excuse to release the Icky Boyfriends album. Mm-hmm. We've gotten an insurance check settlement from an accident we had on tour, and we were able. To, we had a a blowout and a spin out pulling a, a a trailer on the on the I five outside of Portland, and we did a hundred and eighty degree spin out at sixty miles an hour five on the I five and went off the side of the highway and Jesus Christ, nobody was hurt, no other car that we totally dodged death. Yeah, that's and uh, and the the trailer wound up on its side and the hitch had completely torqued and out, twisted. Right. And we wound up getting a, an insurance settlement from uh, from the trailer company, and we used that money to to release the first ever Icky Boyfriends album. And, and we released a few, like the Leather Uppers, the Demolition Doll Rods. Oh, you know, right. those are like a small number of releases. So, you know, and then you know, my friend Bob ran is what you know in the behind the scenes industry, yeah. uh, record buying for a distributor. So, you know, I totally know what goes on and how to, how to release a record and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. on a, on a small scale level. And basically it was just this thing of amassing, you know, do, you know, dozens of hours of these stand up comedy performances and figured we should just start releasing it mm-hmm. and started a talent. And so talent mode is a Larry Sanders reference that's taken from, um, the a Larry Sanders episode with, I believe it's with Sarah Silverman guest starring, but it has to do with when, Sarah's working behind the scenes on the show and then a guest cancels and then they're going to put her out there to do stand up and but it's it's kind of crossing the line where she's she's cast and or she you know she's crew or cast and crew and can't really go out in front of the the cameras and so there's this big argument between Artie and Larry and then Artie you know is like oh god damn it Larry there's this the show is like a castle surrounded by a moat a talent moat <laughs> So, and so that's the name of the, that's the name of the label. Mm -hmm. And it was basically created as a way to start releasing this backlog of these live recordings. And, uh, and that Bucky one, we had, you know, basically we had two or three of his shows of his complete shows. And we, you know, figured, I mean, the costs are so low when you went with, with going and doing rock band recordings, your biggest barrier uh, is going to be, studio time, uh, the expense of studio time. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hunt, you know, whatever you're 30 to 40 an hour, you know, you know, hundreds a day, that kind of stuff. Whereas here we, I had a room that I was able to book and record in for free Mm -hmm. and then amass these recordings. And then Chris, uh, who was the head sound guy at the Hemlock, Chris portfolio, he and I were starting to play, you know, in a band in Hank Four together. But this is after the Evils. Was he in Evils? No, he. Well, yeah, he. Yeah, he was in the Mr. Evils band, and he he wound up being the head sound guy at the Hemlock, and he was the sound guy for all of the Club Chuckle shows. Like any time there was a comedy show, mm-hmm. he was the sound guy, and so he wound up becoming involved the board, yeah. with the label. He was sort of my, you know, my technical. He was the partner in the label. Uh-huh. As far as all the like know, production stuff, yeah, yeah. and he's great because he's a, a studio recording engineer as well. He had a lot of experience doing that, so uh-huh. he was able to, uh, you know, to edit all the stuff together and mm-hmm. you know get us like fully mixed and mastered final mm-hmm. product. And uh, God, and then I had a friend who worked at IOTA, which was the um, online distributor that was started by Kevin Arnold of Noise Pop. Mm-hmm. And IOTA is the company, a San Francisco-based company, and they're the ones who can get uh, record label product into the digital pipeline. They help create like a really successful business that basically gets 
your album into iTunes, Amazon, any digital platform, like basically all over the world. It's really, you know, I think it really works a lot better for music related stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a whole aspect to, you know, but then I, I thought, okay, well, nobody's really buying. Uh, there's not a real big market for physical product and comedy aside from maybe compact discs that comedians sell at shows actually having albums or CDs, they don't really sell very well at a wholesale level or at a store level. Right. It's really more something where if a comedian has a stack of CDs to sell mm-hmm. at the end of the show, people will line up and buy them directly from the comedian. But so I thought that really when we started Talent Mode, the idea was that it would be a primarily a digital label. Okay. Really is kind of, I mean, I would make physical product for promo purposes or make them make small runs of CDs so that the comedians would have something to sell at the shows. Right. But really the whole idea was to try to, to release stuff as cheaply yeah. as possible. Now, now so, did you ever do radio edit versions of CDs? No. Do people not do that anymore? I mean, if you're only making like, what's the run, like a thousand for you? I, well, I mean, that, that's the, that's even, there's still, a, a, I think, a disconnect between, you know, the, the CD manufacturing industry mm-hmm. still is working on that old model of a minimum of a thousand. Like somehow they, at a certain, at a certain point at whatever time in, in compact disc history, yeah. a thousand was the, was the, the magic, was yeah. the magic number of a, of a minimum order. Uh-huh. And it should be like 300 now. Probably. R- really? It should really, the ideal amount for, for probably promo and at show sales should be like, I don't know, two to 300 two to copies. 300, yeah. But the thing is it will cost you as much or possibly even more to make 300 yeah. CDs than it would to make a thousand. Right. And then you wind up, you know, with, so, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and make a thousand. And then you, you literally wind up with, several hundred CDs yeah. that you will never even be able to give away. Right. Unless, yeah, that's the problem, I think. I've run a label, so I'm familiar with some <laughs> of these things. These are common problems, whether it's comedy or something else. But um, uh, but it does seem like doing... So that's one thing I thought was interesting, is how you've managed on the digital side of the promotion side of things to like get into... You've gotten like pretty good iTunes feedback right or getting in the top charts or getting in like the feature well yeah i mean the, the and the the album that that did that for for the label was the brent weinbach album mm-hmm. called the night shift which is also like only a little bit of that is live there's so much of that is actually just like a studio album you know i don't he, I it was one of those things where it really the whole idea of okay you know you tape not that i mean you, not that recording or releasing a comedy album is easy. It is not. But, you know, relatively speaking to, like I said, to comparative to mm-hmm. live bands or recording a band, it should be simpler, right? It should Bucky, be. With Bucky movie. Sinister, you record a couple of shows or over a couple of nights and you can edit it together and, mm-hmm. you know, smooth out the transitions and present, you know, a live album. Yeah. But with Brent Weinbach, um, he, and he was, at that point, he was starting to sell out the Hemlock and he was... He was doing really well. Like he was bringing the comedians. Like he's the one who brought in like Jasper Red and, and Louis Katz and Moshe Kasher, and and these guys were were doing great at the Hemlock, like selling out multiple shows, two shows on a Friday night, and um, it was just a lot of great energy and, mm-hmm. and amazing comedy. And so, really, Brent Weinbach was just one of those guys where um, you know loved Brent's comedy and thought he was a completely and he still is. He's a unique comedian unique performer mm-hmm. and i was like yes you know we've got to do an album with brent 
And so we approached him about it and his whole thing was wanting to do a studio album. Like he was really at the time, he was really heavily influenced by uh, Joe Frank, who I don't know if uh, Joe Frank is, um, he does like kind of long form radio plays okay, that yeah. get aired. Uh, there's a, uh, an LA public radio station that airs a lot of his stuff or that this sort of his, his base, like mm-hmm. that one radio station is the station that kind of puts it all together and then releases it into the public radio network. So, Joe Frank does these really great long form radio plays and that's what Brent was really into at the time. And it probably still is. I mean, Joe Frank is great. I used to, he, um, they used to run all of his stuff on WFMU as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Brent wanted to do a comedy album that was sort of his own twisted version of a Joe Frank radio play. Right. And, um, and at the time, Chris portfolio who I'd mentioned the bassist and studio engineer, Hemlock sound guy, he had built a a studio in the basement of his house. Chris wound up moving into a place called um, the blind pig, which is right around the corner from the Hemlock. And it used to be a recording studio, a 24 track studio that was run by Kyle Statham of the band. Fuck. Mm -hmm. They were a Matador records band. And And someone from fuck was the owner of that. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle was like a, yeah, Kyle, Kyle kind of was a yeah, partner, you know, kind of early got in on the ground floor of mm-hmm. that whole thing. So Kyle wound up moving out. Kyle moved to Italy and Chris wound up moving into his place and setting up his own studio. So all of a sudden, you know, we got Brent was really, you know, really wanted to do this concept studio album and we had a studio and Chris was fully into it and we uh you know, we we took the plunge <laughs> and you know it, it was one of those things where i couldn't be happier with how it turned out in the end but man it it was it turned into this year long like it really was at at various points it it was something of an ordeal <laughs> yeah i mean there's so many different things going on in there and then he's also a dude he's like a piano dude so he has like a piano track on there well yeah he he's a he's a pianist and and he was uh, he was making a living for a while playing um, piano like lounge piano at, at hotels or restaurants, you know. And he's a he's a really good musician. I mean, he's a great piano player. So he wanted to do his own backing music tracks, and then he's really influenced. He's he's got a, a project now where he does the you know the video game music podcast as well as a game show. So he's always he's he's really been into video game eight bit video game music. So he was also recording his own. Kind of eight bit influenced video game music as backing tracks for his comedy routines, mm-hmm. and he is—he's a perfectionist, you know. And and it really, what we thought was maybe going to be a two or three month, four month project, all of a sudden it was five months, six months, seven months, eight. You know. Sometimes people criticize me for not dating enough women and not knowing enough about romance and relationships. I already know everything there is to know about relationships, and I can sum it all up in one sentence. Women are from Venus. Men are from Pagina. I've always felt like a lesbian woman trapped in a boy's body. Whenever I played Street Fighter 2, I would always pick Chun-Li 
those legs. That body. I wanted those legs. I wanted that body. I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be it. But the best I could do was control her female figure with a joystick that only reminded me of my own penis. And six buttons that only reminded me of my own six testicles. When I was five years old, I used to be friends with a girl. And we used to play together all the time. And one day, we were in my bedroom, and she said to me, Hey, Brent, let's kiss. Now, as a kind of joke, we used to blow kisses to each other. And so when she said that, I blew her a kiss. Chris, um, <laughs> if there's anybody who bled and suffered for that record, it is it is Chris. And you know, um, but it was just that one of those things where the first one, you know, went really well mm-hmm. and was relatively easy. And then the second one just became this kind of uh, yeah. almost a morass. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it just. Um, no, I know how morasses work. I just went through that with my label too. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, we all we couldn't be happier with how it turned out in the end. And really, it, it's it, it's kind of a throwback, even almost to um, you know, maybe like the old uh, National Lampoon comedy records. You know what I mean? Like everybody's into doing the live stand-up albums, and that's kind of a very tried and true form. But we really looked at Brent's thing as being sort of like a you know National Lampoon comedy record meets Joe Frank, mm-hmm. you know, but with Brent's own you know, warped sensibilities, right. you know, in, in the mix. And, uh, but yeah, it just became, it just became such a, a long drawn out process that we kind of, you know, anyway. <laughs> did you, did you learn a bit about, um, how you should deal with publicity and marketing for comedy versus how you were doing it 
back when you were putting out like your own records? I guess I basically just kind of took the band route, you know, mm -hmm. or reused my music contacts. I was basically pitching, you know, or presenting comedy to the mu music you know, journalists, to, yeah, to, yeah, or you know, or to people, even like, or to people who, you know. With with Club Chuckles, it was that thing of there's all these people who like really cool bands, but were totally scared and intimidated to go to comedy clubs. Yeah, or priced out. Priced out. That was another thing. Yeah, it was yeah. like very expensive. So we were putting on you know relatively cheap, mm -hmm. accessible comedy shows. Yeah. That if okay, if you like, you know, well, if you like the music that's going on here at the Hemlock, you like Patton Oswalt, you like David Cross, you'll like Brent Weinbach, you'll like these things too. Yeah, yeah. Which and makes so, sense. and that was that was the approach. Yeah. You know that or that that was really the explicit intent. And so when we started releasing the albums, it was sort of, you know taking that taking that approach of you know I guess really I mean I don't I don't really know if there was anybody else I I think it just as a weird thing it was never even the intention it was but I think at this point I mean because the series is it's what almost like nine it's gonna be nine years it's been going on but just by just by having started it when we did it's become I guess the long I, I think it's maybe the longest running comedy in a rock club series at the moment like i don't really know of any other rock clubs in the country that have had a, a comedy series going on for you know nine or ten years now mm -hmm. but you know whatever and other clubs and people are doing it and right. you know it became more of a thing i think kind of around the mid-2000s bucky sinister i mean he was doing kind of spoken word readings and poetry nights at um the albion bar which is right there at the corner of albion and 16th oh weird and and there were even there were some comedians who were involved with that like Mary Lynn Ricegub who later went on to be in Larry Sanders and there was 24. a whole yeah yeah you know there was there was a crew of, of comedians who were San Francisco based in the nineties right and like Patton and Posehn and like yeah. Marin and all that era yeah, yeah they all moved down to L A kind of you well, know en masse Ron Lynch apparently was here for a long time I okay yeah about him but um uh so so there was on the one side there was that thing and that kind of reminds me of a, a side note i was talking to another comic who was talking about it's like now if i go in a cafe and i'll see someone like work in there and it's like they might have been someone that had like a band t-shirt of a band i liked before but then they turn around like they have like a scarborough country t-shirt it's like the, he's like the podcast thing has sort of become the you know the the comedy thing and the music thing have kind of paralleled a lot in, in the last four or five years I've noticed and where the infrastructures are overlapping more and maybe yeah I mean the, the sensibility the, is definitely the, the same yeah there's so much content so much material being generated by the podcast and it's accessible and it's cheap and it, it's you can get it mm -hmm. over all the you know you can get it where where you are all the time on the internet you mm -hmm. know that's where everybody spends all of their time all of their days and nights mm -hmm. nothing could be easier than to get a podcast you know mm -hmm. at this point and it's more, yeah, it's immediate and it's accessible, I think, in a way that um, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be as belabored as mm -hmm. a full-length comedy album, mm -hmm. you know. But when, you know, it was just, uh, you know, when you had mentioned jumping in line mm -hmm. and that whole thing earlier, there was a little bit of that that happened with the label because we put out the Bucky Sinister album and... Um, 
it got a lot of got a lot of critical notice locally. Anyway, I think the, the Brent Weinbach album got more national attention because he was more of an established touring comedian at, at that right. point. Bucky is like a local institution. He's like such a San Francisco. He's thing. a fixture. I don't, he, I, don't think, I don't know if he tours. <laughs> don't he's, hurt me, Bucky. <laughs> like what, what's like a Billy Rain or something almost in a, in a way like just he's identified very much with this. He's not a touring guy. Yeah, I mean, and and also too, he was coming more from somebody who was more into the literary spoken word poetry scene, mm-hmm. but, you know, but po- poetry not being like, not, not being poetry, right. you know, but mo- kind of more of the rough hewn kind of bar room, yeah. Yeah. you know, doing battle with drunk patrons poetry. Yeah. That, that was kind of his, his thing. And, and so he was natural. I felt, I felt he was more naturally suited. This is one of the things about Bucky. He was so well suited for doing comedy at the Hemlock and doing comedy in a rock club. Yeah, whereas some of the background, yeah, because of the punk background. Whereas comedians who were coming out of the comedy club scene, who were coming into the Hemlock for the first time, didn't do very well Mm -hmm. at first, or you know, or their sets, or or they were just easily rattled or Mm -hmm. kind of thrown off their game because the comedy club situation setup is so structured and regimented and controlled fine-tuned like i said they figured it out and they have a thing that works in that setting and so these comedians coming from that world were all of a sudden kind of thrown into you know more of an anything goes rough and tumble rock club situation Mm -hmm. and just didn't have very good sets. I mean, there's there's some like some pretty legendary meltdowns like with hecklers like Brent Weinbach getting into it, you know, with a whole shouting screaming match with this one woman who was offended by his material, and he broke character and got into it, and it became this. You know, crazy what he was doing. His Oakland school teacher. Yeah, yeah, he but, does like the voices and stuff. Yeah. And this woman just started laying into him, and and he he got rattled and broke, you know, and, and, uh, melted down and it became a real ugly, Mm -hmm. ugly scene in the room. And so, you know, but so Bucky was, I thought more well-equipped to deal with that stuff early on. And and I also do want to say that these comedians, some of them did keep coming back Mm -hmm. and got better and better. And I think some of them honed some, a certain kind of chop that maybe, you know, that I think enabled them to, you know, I don't know. It it, yeah. it made their it made them better. Yeah. It, you know, just, just, just being able to handle different rooms. I it, think. it toughened yeah. them up a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that, that's a pretty cool thing to have been able to see firsthand. Right. And um, so it, with Bucky, you know, he was kind of crossing over mm-hmm. and wasn't really known as a comedian, but he was getting up there in a in a so called you know rock, rock club comedy club setting and killing. Mm-hmm. And his album is great. I you know. And people responded to it really well, and it wound up getting a bunch of local press. And there was this one writer, Rehan Harmansi, yeah, yeah. you know Rehan, yeah, and yeah. she was writing for the Chronicle at the time. And she was like, "Hey, I'm going to do a piece on you." And we're like, "Oh, fuck yeah, hell, fuck, that's great." On the and, label, on yeah, or on the label, and on Bucky, and just Bucky, sort of like, yeah. "I'm going to talk to you guys." And we didn't really know, all, you know. Yeah, yeah. I article. figured seriously, it was going to be a little preview blurb or something like that. Mm-hmm. I had no real idea. And I guess one thing led to another, and it wound up, of all things, it wound up being the front cover of the San Francisco Chronicle Sunday date book pink section with a, with a picture of me and Bucky. I mean, <laughs> so really, parents. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right, mom and dad, here yeah. you go. Leave me alone for a few years. I'm on the cover of the I'm on the cover of the pink section. But you know, so really, I mean, how could you ask for anything more or anything better in terms of publicity or positive PR? Yeah. Right. It's it's a coup. It literally is a media coup. Yeah, it's just because you, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't really. You didn't ask for it. We didn't ask for it. We didn't, we didn't lobby for it. We didn't have a publicist or we weren't paying anyone. It was just, it just, it was, Club Chuckles was going on and Bucky was involved and we started a label and one thing, it just kind of. Yeah, and she was someone who was plugged into that scene too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the thing, when that came out, I guess really it didn't sit very well with. With comics or with labels? No, 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 I would say probably maybe more with the local comedy scene or right. with some of the more established comedians. Like, you know, it, you know, where is that thing of these guys who, you know, yeah. I think Bucky kind of had to deal with a little bit more than I did because Bucky was, was trying to get booked at the comedy clubs or trying, yeah. he was trying to use that album and, uh-huh. or, you know, he was, he was he actively had, trying yeah. to be, you know, do more stand up and at professional clubs and as a professional stand up and, and I think he was getting a little got bit a little of, blowback from that of the freeze out blowback kind of what the, the you know who the fuck are you or who the fuck are these guys yeah. doing this you know whatever I mean maybe like I said I don't think I, I should talk to him about it probably he, yeah, he'll have it, he'll tell you all. Yeah. I mean he you know he has a very interesting take on it and mm-hmm. I think he can tell you firsthand you'd say with the wine box you had a little bit more critical success and maybe commercial success. Yeah, it's definitely you know. Really, at this point, there's only three albums, or there there are three albums that are out. The first one was Bucky Sinister, What Happens in Narnia stays in Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, the second was Brent Weinbox, The Night Shift, mm-hmm. the studio concept album, mm-hmm. and then uh, the third one was the Toronto stand-up comedian Nick Flanagan. And so, I guess really, all three of these, if it, these three artists have something in common, I think all three of them are are somewhat of crossover artists in a way like Bucky, like I said, was coming from spoken word kind of punk rock poetry. Brent was doing, was, was, you know, he was coming, he was already an established professional touring comedian, but then was trying to do more of a concept, you know, art piece Mm -hmm. with his album. And then Nick Flanagan was the lead singer of a Toronto hardcore band called the brutal Knights, And, um, so really all three of these guys, you know what I mean? And I think really that, and I think that there's something interesting and cool going on with all those albums in a, aside from the material itself, but there's like an, an aspect the to social. the social. Well, or, or there's an aspect to the comedy on all three of those albums of this weird, I don't know, frisian or, you know, whatever you want to call it, that there's mm-hmm. something about these guys are coming at comedy from different places and different angles. And there's something kind of cool and exciting mm-hmm. That happens as a result of that. And it's not as blunt as something like Brian Posehn does an album on relapse, where it's like you know, like that's that just gets kind of put into that. The heavy metal comedian yeah. doing the yeah. you know, me, uh, you know, doing the album on the heavy metal label, which is still like a good thing. I no, think. and it's great, and you yeah. know, I've seen it, and I saw. I mean, that was maybe it was the first South by Southwest I went to, and that might have I don't know, two thousand three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the that was also um, about a year or so. Club Chuckles is already up and running, but we were so excited because we went down to Austin and that first Comedians of Comedy tour was happening. Oh, okay. So we got to go see that. It was the night before South by Southwest officially started, and we saw Definitely. Brian Posehn, Manford. Um, yeah, all, yeah, Patton, um, the Flight of the Concords, mm-hmm. uh, Z Ansari. 
It was this incredible show. Have you tried to do a Club Chuckles at South by Southwest ever? No, you know, I, I haven't. Um, but, you know, this, this show was, was really amazing that, that we saw. And uh, what else was I thinking about all those guys? Or like, like people like Aziz Ansari, they have a total music overlap too. Like I mean, he had like riffs on uh, like other music and things like that. But, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so really, there was like this this thing that we were just sort of a part of. I I feel that like all that kind of music, rock or underground mm-hmm. or indie, whatever. I'm of the mind that comedy might have surpassed music in a way right now. Like as far as my well, maybe I'm in a particular era of where I'm more interested in it but just uh, as far as like maybe like being plugged into like the brain the the mass brain I think comedy has kind of maybe surpassed at least at least indie rock you know I don't know if that I don't know if you would agree with that um uh, yeah I think that yeah I think that there are exciting cool things important significant cultural things happening in comedy that completely outstrip what's going on in music yeah, you like know, like this like sort of like something like Animal Collective is just like okay, this is an established thing, and they're like whatever they're the Beatles to like nineteen year olds, but then there's like which everyone, by the way you brought Animal Collective helped bring to the Hemlock to the Hemlock. Animal oh. Collective played the Hemlock in o two or o three o two or o three, and I you, thought you them, I thought I booked them at the Edinburgh, but I might have done it twice. It might have been it's a different tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that yeah you you there helped. You go. <laughs> Well, Chris, um, Chris has actually moved out of San Francisco and he is, yeah, he, he took a job at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. He's not at the Hemlock anymore and Mm -hmm. he's not really doing any studio recording, you know, like hanging out with whales and shit. I'd I'd have to show up, I'd have to show up at his, at his doorstep with a, with a basket full of cash to probably get him to be involved with any more of my projects. Did the Weinbach thing just break his brain? You know, I, I mean, he, he's he's very proud of that release, and right, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it broke him a little. I think it. <laughs> you know, it does, sometimes good. that happens with projects. It'll just break you, and then you know, you just, like you might be able to get back into it at some point. But yeah, the the one the one project, and this this really has been on the on the docket from from very early on. But there is a, uh, I mentioned I was talking about some of the. San Francisco sketch groups of the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. and pretty much the my favorite of that whole of that whole crew was uh, White Noise Radio Theater, which is uh, Stephen Brophy, Lester Milton, and then uh, Beth Lissick was involved, and Janet Varney was also in it mm-hmm. for a time, and, uh, and yeah, they um, did a CDR. They 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 self released some CDRs, and I think you know it was basically I think they. They made and burned their own CDRs and had some really good artwork. And I think it was the kind of thing where it really only sold at shows and never really, you know, made it out there commercially. And I'm I basically have an archive of, of their entire of their entire output. Part of the problem, right? Or the thing that we started moving ahead with the project, and then we kind of hit a, a stumbling block, which was unclearable music. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I it's just a matter of. You know, I I think we we hit that around the time that I kind of ran out of money, and then yeah. <laughs> you and know, not there's all do it live, right? Or they're not really doing well, like that's on no, show. they're they're not active as a group. Yeah. But Stephen Brophy is writing for reality television in LA, and he's doing solo com, or actually, he's still doing sketch comedy in LA. And Les Milton is still based, or he's based in San Francisco, and is doing um, solo comedy performances. They're really kind of more. 
one man white noise radio, or it, it really has more in common with, uh, you know, like Will Franken, Monty Python, yeah. and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where it, he's not he's not up there doing, you know, faux confessional stand up mm-hmm. or trying. You know, he's he's doing very highly crafted and hilarious and weird solo performances, mm-hmm. and then. Um, you know, so they're they're all, and then Beth is is writing, and she's doing mm-hmm. comedy, you know, performances and uh, stuff like that. So they're they're all individually active, and I really think that if there's going to be a fourth release on the label, you know, that that mm-hmm. I really feel pretty strongly. It's one of those things where that material holds that material, even though they recorded it, you know, at this point, ten, twelve years ago, is still. It's not. I mean, to listen to it mm-hmm. in 2012. It's not dated. The references aren't dated. You know, so much like stand-up comedy doesn't age very well, or yeah. at least, or I mean, in terms of topicality, uh, yeah. th- those albums, and they're maybe it's just their whole approach of, you know, they're getting in and out of skits using collage techniques and mm-hmm. using, you know, effects and you know, their their segues are genius, mm-hmm. and they're able to create this kind of seamless tapestry, and the, the, so you know, it winds up being. Um, very, very. It's, it sounds very modern yeah. still to listen to. It doesn't sound dated, even though, it, you know. And then they're they're making they're That's, not they're not attacking um, specific individual movies, but it's more of creating their own world. Yeah. And so that stuff is still vital. It almost sounds hilarious. like they were a little a couple years too early for the podcast wave for it, what they're doing. Yeah. And because I, I remember listening to those pieces too. Yeah. Like it would it would totally be in a perfect kind of format for what they're doing now. And that's the other thing I kind of wonder about, like with running a traditional physical format label, and then there's the podcast world seems to be kind of have overtaken that also in terms of comedy. Yeah. Uh, So it's like hard to say. And like, I know with the Flanagan record, I know Erin, and she put out the vinyl version. Of yeah, Erin Erin McDermott, yeah. DJ Classic Bar Music. She mm-hmm. she runs a classic bar music label, and I really didn't have I didn't have the money to put out the vinyl, and mm-hmm. really the whole idea being still trying to stay with digital. Mm-hmm. She released the album on vinyl, so it is out there on mm-hmm. wax. Mm-hmm. So you do think of the CD as more of like a supplement. From a like or a way for the the artist to have something they can sell. Yeah, I mean, Brent, Brent's done really well selling those mm-hmm. CDs at shows, mm-hmm. you know, and like when you you know, and I've personally witnessed other you know name brand comedians after their shows at the you know at Cobb's and Punchline. I mean, people yeah, line up to buy the, thing, to buy those yeah, CDs. Yeah. yeah, a special thing, yeah, you know, being the other kind of more grassroots, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll and do vinyl. They'll do like occasional like yeah, uh, they're they're based in L.A. Record, yeah. You know, but I think really in terms of like a dedicated comedy label, then there's what like stand up records out of Minneapolis, but yeah. they're they're kind of pretty, or, or you know, Chunklet, yeah, he did like a, a patent thing pretty early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry Henry was definitely Henry's, Henry's in in on the mm-hmm. the first wave of all that. Something like you putting together like a podcast would make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, and it's something I've thought about. You know, I got so I got re heavily involved with live music over the last few years. Just I think playing, at the yeah. I think at the point when I had started um, working at the Hemlock and doing all that stuff, I was really focused on that. I wasn't playing, you know, in bands as much as I am right now. Like at, at this point, I don't know how it happened. All of a sudden, I'm playing drums in three bands again, right? And it's pretty pretty crazy with that. And then, you know, I mean, just 
And you've got other stuff coming other, up. Other, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm, I, it's like I've, I've got a full plate, and comedy is something I'm still, you know, really deeply interested in. I think I've just, I've, I've, I've just reached a point of not having the time and money that I did, to, you know, a few years ago when I first started it. But, you know, whatever. At the same time, I think, you know, I think with Talent Mode, it was always going to be an occasional release. Like, it wasn't something where I was going to set out to be... Mm-hmm. Um, trying to flog a release schedule. Yeah. I think there could be a way to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, you know, I mean, it would take having a basket of cash yeah. up front. And I, you know, I think there could be a way that you could do it and try to launch yourself into that racket mm-hmm. and then keep spinning plates, what <laughs> I've spinning no- plates yeah. on sticks. Well, I've also noticed that with a lot of comics, they don't have a DIY background and therefore like a, like money things kind of confuse them and like just deals confuse they're just like oh anyone wants to do anything with me I'll go along with it I mean kind of like not everyone obviously but there's like not as much maybe business savvy in that world because they're not used to they're just like used to doing stuff for free all the time for one thing I think I think it's still the point when you you know you you can be working the small club circuit I mean like there okay like there are some comedians who you know played a you know, Saturday night show at the Hemlock and 15 people came to the show. Mm-hmm. And then a month and a half or two later, um, I'm in New Orleans in a hotel room, you know, at five o'clock in the morning <laughs> and the TV goes on and there's the comedian who, you know, mm-hmm. with his own half hour special. And then, you know, a month and a half ago, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's feast or famine, yeah. you know, or you can go from, you know, being, you know, zero to national television, you know, so there, there, there's, there's deeper, longer running kind of industry things that go on with comedy that, you know, that that's way different than music. Right. As a tie in, I know that you've also been doing this thing that kind of brings together your booking world and your interest in comedy and then just like the sort of unintentional comedy. Yeah. The, the hubris of the self promotional beast, which is interesting. We're talking about promotion a lot, but, um, so when did you start? You you start collecting all these, and you referred to these as Holder Rock fans uh, when well, you were back it, in the early days of booking. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about because I, ha- I ran a fanzine, and I would get the weird, you I mean, know, if, like Daily City band, and, like the glossy photo, and they look like Gap dudes or whatever. Yeah, Folder Rock. It specifically refers to, um, well, the original definition refers to the old school physical press kits yeah. the bands used to mail out before the proliferation of the internet or before really I think before MySpace. Oh, you still get them though, don't you? Very seldom. They're they're they're, they're still out there a little bit, yeah. but really I mean when I so for example, when I first started at the Hemlock, mm-hmm. um, I was receiving dozens of these physical press kits a week, hundreds a month, mm-hmm. thousands I mean seriously, thousands you know in the course of that year, I mean, and there were so many, and they were just piling up in the office. I was getting angry phone calls from the bar manager, like, Yo, get the hell down here, get this shit out of here. You know, like really just angry phone calls. I'd be like, oh shit. I had to go and borrow a car and go down there and like load up the trunk with like multiple 25 gallon trash bags of these demo submissions. And then I, well, it was the, only, the easiest way to carry them. Yeah. And then I got them all home, and then they were in my bedroom, and then in the hall closet, and then my roommates got mad at me because I, you know, they were yelling at me to get rid of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it really was, it was this thing where the more elaborate and fancy the package, and I'm talking, there's a whole breakdown of, or, mm-hmm. of these components mm-hmm. of, of these packages, 
um, Moxie is attacking George. <laughs> right, right. You did like almost like a uh, like a. a, a for the right word, like the phenomenology or the, uh, yeah, the, the, the morphology of uh, all these, like... Uh, of this physical yeah. kit, which had yeah. to do with, you know, a special kind of translucent plastic folder with a drawstring, and then mm-hmm. there was a, duo, a glossy duotang folder, and then inside of the yeah. duotang, there's the band business card and the, you know, the photo, and then, and then these bands would print their bios on... You know, regular uh, resume paper. Well, yeah, in like regular paper that you know, regular run of the mill paper is just like twenty pound paper. Yeah, yeah. And um, if you you know parchment or like you know our heavy cardstock is more like fifty, sixty, a hundred pound. Oh, yeah. People would print. People would print band bios on like wedding caliber stationery. It's more expensive than just making a CD. I'm telling you, the, the amount of money <laughs> and the expense that some people went to, like yeah. just figuring the fancier the kit, the more somebody will have to pay attention to it. Uh, and so then it became axiomatic that the fancier the kit, chances are the worse the music. Right. The more they feel like they have to like buy their way into legitimacy. You know, and I, I know some people don't like to, to hear that or think about that, but I'm just telling you that yeah. that's, that became... That became my studied opinion. Mm-hmm. And so um, the main thing that happened that kind of killed off physical folder rock was the advent of MySpace because then for the first time bands were able to finally go and put all of this expensive or, or take everything that went into doing an expensive mailer and just put it up online. So you mm-hmm. could all of a sudden with MySpace you could do you know a couple of MP3s, a band bio, a picture, and everything you need is right there and it didn't cost you anything. So all of a yeah. sudden over the course of two or three, four months, six months, mm-hmm. what had been a, a deluge of physical press kit folder rock basically just, you know, went, went down to a trickle. Mm-hmm. But then people started getting into, because now since th- they were no longer shackled by money or physical constraints mm-hmm. of what they had to send through the mail, it became this kind of weird hyperbole inflation that a lot of bands started using to describe themselves and their sound. And so there, there's a whole, um, you know, basically what Folder Rock refers to now is just sort of this, you know, it's like a genre of outlandish claims. Subject or, line rock. You know, and, <laughs> and, and then like even inside of that, I've discovered all sorts of categories and kind of keywords or things that you know kind of bring all this stuff <laughs> red flags for any i can music. i can go through and yeah. like any any band that claims to be face melting there is a whole genre of bands that claim actually it's I've not even just face melting there's the broader category is facial violence yeah. like any sort yeah. of any sort of thing that a band is going to do to your face <laughs> of which melt, melting your face is just one of the things that can yeah. happen yeah to your face yeah. by a band that is supremely rocking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So shredding, tearing. One, you know, one eating. one band claimed that they were going to blow a hole in my face. Oh, they love bath salts. These bands, <laughs> they were really excited about the bath salt genre. So um. you know, it's it's just sort of this, you know, um, and and there's plenty of there. And I, I just want to point out that there's plenty of bands and people or their representatives that send out perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, commu- you know, communications or mm-hmm. you know, booking unsolicited booking inquiries, as mm-hmm. it were. You know, hey, my band is looking for a gig. We sound like this. We're looking to play this date or this date, right. and right. here's our website. That's how it should be. 
it's very, you know, mm-hmm. very cut and dry, mm-hmm. no BS. It's just kind of like, all right, you mm-hmm. know, check it out. But Folder Rock is, when, <laughs> you know, people people go to these insane lengths yeah. of self description, and um, you know, I, I love the examples that you put up where like you obviously are not invested at all in this band as a reader, and then they have to explain to you like, well, we've been through four drummers. The second drummer was this guy. Origin you know, like, origin stories are uh, origin uh, stories are a big component of Folder Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People really love to get into the uh, Dave met Gary when they were hanging out on the. St- oh no 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 one one. Uh, let me use a, a real world example, not even hypothetical. There is one band that said something like, "Danny met Bill when Bill went over to Danny's house to deliver a package." And then I'm going to UPS. I'm going. Well, man, what is it? Pot delivery? Is it UPS? Like what? You know, is it now a pizza? Now I'm interested. Is it a pizza? Like what? What got delivered to the house that day? And then, <laughs> you know, maybe like it, the thing we do is like take a classic work of literature and then break it down to like it's the from the perspective a folder rock version of it. Oh like, man! Like, uh, oh well, I'm, I'm telling <laughs> you, Professor Jones had to bring the uh, ark back from a. Some people, I'm I'm not kidding when I'm telling you happened. that some people are sending a twenty five thousand word. You know, I'm talking like they uh, will have a multi page bio, like a not even a PDF, like a Word doc or something, or even just enclosing the body of the email. But it gets uh, into their origins, and it gets. I mean, it gets into every bit of minutia mm-hmm. about the history of the band, and then with all the press quotes and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, so really by the end, like it's, it's, you know, it's this insane yeah. overload of information, and a lot of it at that point starts becoming sort of unintentionally hilarious or, mm-hmm. or the, the, the claims like the bands like in in 2006 I for some reason I started receiving a crazy amount of emails of bands that claimed to be influenced by the police I don't know how it happened but in the year 2006 yeah. that became the band to name check or to claim that you were influenced by. But the police, it's so maddening because how the, the police are one of those bands that, I mean, you sound like the police, which era of the police? Yeah. I mean, first of all, what are you even talking about yeah, when exactly. you say that? Yeah, yeah, why, why is that your selling point? And are you? Oh, <laughs> because well, of Vampire Weekend. Well, I'll, I I'll mean, tell it's you. because of Vampire Weekend. I'll, I'll t- <laughs> no, this is, well, this is, book, that was the era. What was that? I wonder. I, I think, think it was around that time. Uh, but I'll tell you the one thing that actually killed killed off all the police comparisons uh-huh. uh, was the police reunion. <laughs> the police reunion tour right. drove a stake through the heart. Of the nostalgia people were feeling about. <laughs> <laughs> like, that that ended it once and for all. Yeah. So that's that's how I can actually say Did it. Did Dune come out on DVD that year? Maybe that's what it was. And then I, I think I think really in, in hindsight, I think the year 2010 will go down as the year of the glockenspiel. Oh, like basically, I, I now have a moratorium on. I'm not booking any bands at the Hemlock that have a Glockenspiel. Right. If you have a, if you are a band that brags about having or name checks a Glockenspiel as one of your instruments mm-hmm. in your booking email, mm-hmm. you will get Glock blocked. <laughs> Glock blocked. <laughs> like also, like gangster rap would be Glock blocked. But um, do you, um, so what would you say is like the the meme of 2012 right now as a at the club level like the developing band club level what's like the the names that get dropped 
It's a lot of uh, a lot of Deerhoof name drops. A lot of uh, no Bolt name drops. No, not a lot of you know. There's uh, are we moved on? You got, you there's a lot of genres. Ryan. There's a lot of Ryan Adams and Chili Peppers. It, there, there's really? like there's still like there's a bunch of kind of rock funk bands that you know or um. Or here's another aspect of Full Rock is when people put these crazy combinations of, oh, yeah, yeah. of bands meets, together. Blah, 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 meets blah, 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 yeah. So it's like John Mayer meets Hoobastank. Oh. You know, and how can you really? I mean, when you and think about those... look at those, your club ever. <laughs> you know, those yeah. those two things, saying that your band sounds like John Mayer and Hoobastank simultaneously should really, like, should cause any right-thinking person to have something of a of a mental crisis <laughs> trying to reconcile those two things yeah. in your brain it's like it's near impossible right. the fact that you know you could say we sound like these two these two bands Hoobastank and John Mayer is like you know so it be, you know so I just started referring to that as Mayer Stank <laughs> so bands That's that make genre. crazy claims about you know multiple band influences does that um, mean there's more singer-songwriters on the market right now yeah, and, and also I, 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 that's a thing that never goes away. That's a genre that never really dies off. There's a lot of sad emails from solo loopers. Oh, yeah. That's a, there's a lot of that. The loop yeah, station, yeah, the loop station, station has guys. empowered a generation of of lonely people out on the road yeah. of one man, one woman bands out on the road. I really, yeah, I need to watch out that I don't become one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't really do that, but. Um, so anyway, yeah. So there, there's there's basically a Twitter feed, folder rock, folder underscore rock, on Twitter where you know there's there's excerpts, kind of almost um, almost like cold open, a best of, you know, yeah, yeah kind of a best of, and, and they're pretty presented without without commentary, which is how I feel that it it it, it reads the best. Like I, if, well, you sometimes you will you write your own writing in there occasionally. Yeah, yeah. It, I can yeah. tell it's your voice, yeah. and it's not that voice. EPKs are the folder rock digitally, right? Pretty much. I really like, wish. Shit, right? I really wish that the band SPK would send me their EPK. <laughs> Spec. <laughs> um, so that's like you're kind of a creative outlet for you. I do like the idea of maybe doing like a fiction contest, like maybe take some a folder rock tweet and like use it as a beginning of a short story or something because that's exactly i think oh yeah yeah, well, yeah maybe we could do it like that erotic fan fiction that it happened there was how a was that i missed er- that erotic fan fiction was that your idea Who's it was not that? my idea uh-huh. uh it was it was an outside guy a promoter who came up with the concept mm-hmm. and he brought it to san francisco and loaded it up with um mm-hmm. you know sean Keane, baron vaughn mm-hmm. alex cole Caitlin Gill. Yeah, a lot of business kind of. Uh, and man, I am telling you, that Baron was, that was just, they basically were given a topic and had to go out into the main bar and, and write yeah, their, yeah. write their fiction. That, that was amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. The total, man, I loved, I loved that show. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I, but are you doing, and I know you did a regular, you were doing a regular thing, like a weekly with Kamau Bell for a minute. And, uh, we, we did a residency with, yeah. with Kamau Bell and Nato Green, and Kamau was an early Club Chuckles performer going back to like 2004, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and he did, it, he did it a couple times, and he, uh, he came back recently, this is, it would be just Before this year, show, yeah, yeah. 2012, mm-hmm. and they were uh, both getting to record albums, and I think he was getting ready to start doing his show, his TV show, and basically they were looking for a residency so they could you know, have a, a regular, some regular, you know, regular room to work. And so, yeah, they did every Monday for, I don't know, it was like three, three months, I think it was. And 
yeah, it was it was it was cool. Yeah. And um, talking to NATO, maybe they'll maybe they'll come back, I and mean, they'll definitely be back at some point. Mm-hmm. We'll see if they come back for a residency or not. Well, you've got your bands too that you're doing, like the Hank Four, and then you just joined another band. Yeah. So as far as the bands I'm doing right now, um, the first band I was in here in San Francisco, Icky Boyfriends. Um, we hadn't, we had broken up in 1995 mm-hmm. and then in 2010 we reunited to play the Budget Rock Festival and then that led us uh, to playing Goner Fest in oh, Memphis okay. and then we played the SS Records Fest this past summer here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and now Are we're going FMU or something? We're going out to the East Coast to play the WFMU Record Fair oh, in November, on Sunday, great. November 4th and I guess it's the largest record fair on the East Coast. And um, so we're going to play that, and then we're going to play The Cake Shop and Death by Audio. <laughs> oh, you're going to play Death by Audio? So, yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, I was <laughs> I've always, always wanted to play New York with the Icky Boyfriends, yeah. and with, this will be our first time there. Yeah. So we've been practicing a lot, and, um, and then I'm playing. So everyone still lives here? Well, I, it's two-thirds band mm-hmm. practice. I'm playing uh, with the guitarist. The mm-hmm. singer lives in Baltimore, John Swift lives mm-hmm. in Baltimore. And then I'm playing drums for Little Queenie, which mm-hmm. is an Oakland band with yeah. guys from the Gree Gree and Battleship. Right, Oscar and Bean. And yep. Yeah, great, great guys. Two bass, two bass guitars. Oh, really? Drums and a vocalist. Okay, who's the singer? Uh, it is Mark Merman. Oh, okay, okay. So it's kind of like a variation of this other band I've seen them do before. years. Like Short Eyes. Oh, okay, yeah. It's kind of like Mark on vocals, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's and cool. then uh, and now I'm playing drums. I was playing guitar in Hank Four for a while and. We lost our drummer to a tragic accident, right, yeah. which is a whole sad saga unto yeah. itself. But that said, I, I moved over to drums mm-hmm. uh, in that band for the time being. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of it's like it's all the same guys, and it's kind of sounds like Hank Four, but it's mm-hmm. it's different, and it's you know it's, uh, it's you were, a little. You new. had two guitars before, so it's not yeah. So now it's down to one guitar, yeah. and instead of two vocals, it's mm-hmm. only it's just Bob now, and mm-hmm. you know. So, so you do have some shows with that coming up too. Right? We we just played one. We don't have anything else booked at the moment, but we do have a new record coming out on Holy Mountain. Oh, great! Yeah. A seven inch, and uh, Chris Johansson did the artwork. Oh no way! And uh, Miles from Nungfak yeah, yeah. is silk screening the covers. And oh, right. so yeah, yeah Holy right. Mountain's putting out. Yeah, it's 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 done. It should be out in, in October. And uh, you have other developing projects, I guess. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be a dad. Yeah, All right, so there it is. Be, uh, there yeah. you go. Exclusive breaking Exclusive. here. Breaking breaking, breaking news. podcast news. <laughs> <laughs> little little bedards running around. Well, uh, Tony, that was really fun. I, we touched on a lot of stuff. It's really fun having you, George. On. Thank you for having yeah. me. Um, thanks a lot, Internet Land. Yeah. Thanks, Moxie, for behaving. Good girl. She's lying at my feet now, asleep. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.